Today, as we are finishing up uh, Psalms, uh, we're in Psalm 139. And so we begin to look at who God is. And when we start to get to this Psalm here, uh, this Psalm of David, uh, this Psalm, uh, it's interesting how David writes it again under the Holy Spirit, giving him these words to be able to not only for him and not only for the people of Israel at the time, uh, but also again for us later on down through uh, the years. But as we look at this, this psalm uh, is uncomfortable and also great and hopeful. Uncomfortable because we get to see a part of who God is. And I don't know about you, but if you have become comfortable with God to an extent, you may wanna check it. Because this amazing, powerful, almighty God who allows us to be his children through faith in Jesus Christ is also the same God that could still take our life like that. It's this balance of this holy love and fear that we catch in this moment that you never take this amazing God for granted. Does that make sense? I'm not asking again, he is a heavenly father, one that we can crawl up in his lap and cry out, Abba, Father. He's also one that tells us he is all-powerful, almighty, and holy, We are not to take this relationship with him for granted, ever. Now, as we go through this, let's see where we find this this amazing balance in this. So starting in 139, it says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Let's just stop right there. You have searched me and known me. Right now, there is no better expert on this earth of Sean Caudell than Dana Caudell. Dana Caudell goes through my life and she can tell you how I'm kind-hearted and also where I'm a jerk at times. She can tell you why I'm getting frustrated and what's frustrating me. She can tell you when I'm about ready to lose it and she can tell you when I am at peace. My wife knows me, but she's not the overall expert. As much as she knows me, and I'm thankful for that, and that's biblical, God knows me. And he knows me better than anyone. And think about this, so God knows you. God knows everything about you. God knows the good stuff that you want to acknowledge, and he knows the nasty stuff that you would rather bury away. True? And there are times that if we don't watch it, we think that we can actually hide something from God. Did anybody act like that? Anybody think you can hide something from God? I mean, there are moments, there are moments, there are moments when we actually feel like we could hide something from God. But the Bible tells us here, oh Lord, you have searched me and know me. Everything about us, every good thing, And every nasty thing, God knows. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. When we think about just how amazing God is, not only does he know when I, stand up and sit down. He knows before I stand up and sit down. He knows all things. He is aware of what's taking place. And you are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Now, in a moment, there's part of this that's scary. A holy, almighty, all-powerful God who has laid out what he desires of me knows the sin in my life and also knows the sin that I partly at times cherish. Nobody in here cherishes their sin though, right? little sarcasm there. I mean, 
There are things about us with this flesh that still craves things in this world that is not of God. And at times when we try to put on a front to other people like we have it figured out, but yet God knows what's going on, that's a, that's a little scary. But then there's great hope. There's great hope in that we have a God that his disposition towards us is love. He does know us and he desires that we would be so vulnerable, so broken, so honest with him and crying out that he is a God that knows us and desires the best for us as we come to him. Jesus Christ died, not that we would be sinless on this earth, but that we would be forgiven and transformed to begin to live more like him. We will never be sinless on this earth. Why? This flesh still craves the nastiness that's in this world. That's why I'm promised a new body. I've already got a new soul. I've got a new nature that's within me, a new nature that has been forgiven. And I bought, I'm forgiven all the way through, all the way through, all the way through. But I'm going to be given a new body that one day it will not crave. It will be 100% ready to praise God, never struggling with sin again, and God knows everything about me. But that's why we have the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. To be forgiven, the God living inside of me, me being transformed. And as God knows everything about me, I don't have to play games with God. I don't have to act like I'm somebody that I'm not. I don't have to act like that. I try to put on a front for all of you, but I can't do that to God. Can I? Not? Can, I? can you put on a front to God? You can't do it. And thus God wants us to be honest and vulnerable and broken before him, not trying to hide behind this, but actually allowing this to penetrate deep within us to begin to say, oh God, if you don't do something, there is no hope. If you don't do something, there is no hope. But my God is full of hope because that's why he came on this earth. That's why he lived. That's why he died. That's why he rose again. He knows us, church. He knows us. The only thing that's scary is when you act like he doesn't and try to put on a facade. But he knows us. That's first point. No one knows you better than God. No one. Not a friend, not a spouse, not a child. Nobody knows you better than God. The second point as we go on, let's read through. Starting in verse seven, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. Now it's interesting here again, as we look at this, where shall I go from your spirit? Where can we possibly go? Let's look at the negative again on this. One, where shall I or where shall I flee from your presence? Why would I flee from God? Why would I flee from God? Shame. What? Shame. Yes. I thought you didn't know my name for a minute. I was like, did you call me Shane? It's like, Sean, shame. Shame in this moment. She doesn't know you very well. I know, it's what I'm wondering, right? She doesn't know me as well as God knows me. Thanks for proving my point, baby. All right, so, so shame. Watch this. Shame is one of those things we find ourselves in the midst of sin. We've blown it. Other people have told us we've blown it. Something else has gone on. And we, instead of running to God, we will run everywhere else. Fear. fear. There's no way this is ever going to get figured out. And so in fear, we flee from God. We find other things that we think are our fortress. Sometimes... We love our sin too much. God, you can have everything else but this area. 
And here's the sad thing about it. Sometimes we think that area is a good thing. We use all kinds of Bible passages to defend it. But actually, we're trying to define God in our image instead of him telling us who he is. It's arrogance and it's pride. Why would we flee from God? Why would we run the opposite direction from what God desires in our life that he wants to relieve the burden and tell us who we are and how he loves? Why would we flee from God? But yet, this is what that part says, or where shall I flee from your presence? But in the positive side of this, moments where we feel hopeless and God, where are you? The positive is this. Look at verse 11, or let's start in verse eight. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. There is nowhere we can go. There's no situation we can be in. There's nothing that we can do that can ever get away from the God who loves us. There is no sin that you can be a part of that you can't find God there as you repent and turn to him and say, oh God, I have blown it. Oh God, I need you. Can you get so far away from God? Never, never. Can you find yourself in a situation that it seems like you have blown it, you have failed, there's no hope in all this? Can you ever be away from God who's able to redeem a situation? Never. We can't get away from this amazing God. Ever. Ever. He knows us and knows everything about us. He is everywhere and is there for us as soon as we turn in that moment. As soon as we turn, he is there. How many of y'all have ever been in a cave? Anybody done the Mammoth Cave Tour? That's usually the one to go to. You've been in the cave? They always do that one thing and they put you in there and they shut off the lights. And I I don't care how many times I've been in there. I don't know why. I've, I've taken that since I was a kid and every now and then we'll go. But every time I get in the cave, I do this. I don't know why I do it because I know it's gonna be this way every time. But they flip off the lights and this is what I'm doing. Every single time. Like, I... Why am I doing this? I know that I'm not gonna see anything every single time. But that is the scariest darkness that I have been in. Scariest darkness that I have been in. And yet, here David is saying this, the darkest of the dark, the blackest of the night, the darkest thing you could find yourself in is right now like God being in the sunlight, being able to say, I see exactly where you're at. You're not away from me. You're not away from my presence. I see exactly who you are, where you're at, and what's going on. I am here. I am here. This is the beauty of God. There is no darkness that could ever keep us hidden from God. Point two, there is no place you can go away from God. No place. Physically, mentally, emotionally, there is no place that you can be away from God that he is not right there saying, take my hand. There is no situation that you find yourself in that God is not right there that's saying, I can redeem. Take my hand. There's nothing. Sean, you may say this, but Sean, I've experienced things in my life and it fell apart. Maybe somebody else did it. Maybe you did it and it fell apart. And you're saying, Sean, but that was the darkest moment. But where is God? Church, I'm gonna share with you right now. This is what I have found in this. In this fallen world, not every situation turns out the way that I want it. I will tell you this. Every time I've grabbed a hold of God's hand, he has always redeemed me in every single situation. Every single situation. The situation may not turn it out the way I wanted, but God has changed and transformed and done something in my life every single time because he's that good. 
I'm not saying that I don't have pain. I'm not saying that there's not consequences. I'm not saying I'm gone through difficult moments. What I'm saying is this. My God has proven every single time to be faithful in the Father who loves me. Every time. Every time. I cannot get away from him. He is right there. Let's go on. It says this. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Now think about this. God formed me. God formed me. Why would God do that? Why would God give me or you life? Here's what I know. God gives life and does not make a mistake by giving life at any point in time, no matter what. And our life ultimately is called to reflect the creator. I was made in the image of God to give him glory and to point all of creation to God. Why did he form me? Because he loves me. He doesn't make mistakes. And he calls me to live this life dependent in faith, in relationship, in joy with him. Not only for my benefit individually, but for the world around me that can recognize this amazing God. Now, point three, your life gives testimony to the greatness of God. You can't get away from him. He knows everything about you. And on top of that, why? Because you were called to point people to him. Now, as we go through these next couple of things, I want you to hear me clearly and don't take anything out of context. If you have questions about it, then come and talk to me. Can we agree on that? So don't just hear a couple things and then start, you know, well, Sean said such a... Context, come talk to me. One of the reasons, one of the reasons why abortion is so catastrophic is because not only is it taking an individual life that's made in God's image, to reflect and glorify God. But also in that moment that you are taking away generations of people that would have been born after that. You remove not only one individual, but generations of people. When God said, be fruitful and multiply, God was wanting to cover the earth with those that would reflect him and glorify, would propagate not only physically, but also spiritually. And it's interesting right now that within Christendom that we have not looked at that. We, we think large families are 
the society thinks that large families are a menace and that kids may get in the way of what's going on. Now, I'm not telling everybody here individually what you're called to be doing. What I'm saying is this. What's the biblical reason for why God said and did what he did? We were formed in the very image of God to proclaim him and promote him. Now, if you have had an abortion, I want you to know right now that you are not past God's forgiveness. He sees you. He knows. He knows where you've been. He knows what you have done. And he looks for you to turn to him. And 100%, 100% the forgiveness and love of God is right there. It is right there. So don't allow the enemy and don't allow something else in this moment to, to attack and say that somehow I've done the unpardonable sin or there's no way that God can love me. You think you're in the darkness. God sees you fully in the light and says, you are my child. Come to me. But we were formed. We were formed. And, and even this, I'll go on this one last thing. Somebody says, and I've heard this, somebody says, well, why would those children be born? Because they're not going to have a shot to do anything. Some children are just going to be, they're never going to have a shot. They're going to be neglected or they're not going to be cared for. And they're never, they're, they're, they're gonna, some of them will grow up to, to, to be horrible people or, or, or some of them are going to die and never make it out. I want you to think about this for a moment. Have you ever gone through the lineage of Jesus Christ? You ever gone through the lineage of Jesus Christ? Most of the time, if you ever look at the, the lineage, if you ever look at that, you don't want to go through it because you're like going, I don't care how many begats. I don't care. But I want you to go back and look at the history of the messed up people that are in Jesus's life. If some of those, if some of those people were not in there, Jesus wouldn't have been born. Some of them are horrible, murderous people. Some of them had horrible things done to them. But all of them in that moment still played a part in the coming of Jesus Christ. We never get to value somebody's life and say, well, they're not worth it. They shouldn't have existed. We miss the point that life is given by God for his purposes who's still in control. Every life matters. And every life has the opportunity to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We were formed to give God glory. We were formed to give God glory. That's why we were created. We go on. Verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Boy, no one ever has that for their verse of the day, do they? <laughs> Nobody ever gets that one on there sitting there going, ah, I'm going to memorize that one today, right? We, now again, context, okay? Again, context. What does the whole Bible say? What are we looking at here? First, let's start with the overall arching truth that we know. The Bible tells us that God is love. That is an overarching truth. We know that in the verse. The Bible says that. We know that God is love and that his intentions towards people is that none should be lost and everyone should be saved. Can we agree on that? That's in there. But there are verses that are in the Bible that talks about God hating the wicked. There are verses in there that talks about God hating. Now, you and I, when we think of hate, we get on an emotional moment. God is not functioning from an emotional moment. God is functioning from justice and relationship. Let me read these to you really quick. Psalms 5.5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Psalm 7, 11 through 13. 
God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Now, again, I told you, hang with me. Let's put it in context. The reason I bring this up, the reason I bring it up today is because there are too many times that we just want to automatically say that God is love, but when we get to that passage or those verses, we just go, nah. But the problem is this, church, they're there. If I just ripped this out, if I started ripping pages out of my Bible right now, what would you do? Would you be horrified? I would hope so. Some of you would look at me and go, he's lost his mind. I'm not gonna listen to him preach anymore. He's ripping pages out of the Bible. Church, that's what we do if we get to verses and we say, nope, I don't wanna deal with that. Just forget it. You're, that's exactly what we do. Now, what does it mean here? What does it mean in a Psalm 5.5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Let's, let's think about this and put it in context with the Bible, okay? Because God is what? I already said it in the beginning. God is and he wants to offer salvation to everyone. So how do we put these verses in context? And what is David saying here of hating with a perfect hate? Think about this. Best example I can give right now is that of the Canaanites. And the Canaanites, as Israel was moving into it, at one point in time, God had looked at the Canaanites and he said, wipe them out. Men, Women, children, animals, wipe them out. And as soon as we get into that, we go, oh my goodness, God is heartless. What is he thinking? I cannot believe this. And it's a difficult thing that sometimes is posed by non-believers to believers that say, your God and your Bible, it's all messed up. By the way, the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. He's never changed. But let's think about what did God say about the Canaanites and why did God say this about the Canaanites? As Israel was coming out of slavery and they were moving into the promised land, they were going to have to inherit a land that was inhabited by other nations. And those nations, God wanted the opportunity for them to know him. But they were steeped in idolatry. They were steeped in their ways. And so as they began to come in, God had said, you're going to take the land. But again, Israel was supposed to be even that moment of promoting Yahweh. Beforehand, for 400 years, when we get to Lot and we get to Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah, as we look at that city and even other things that I was reading about, the history of that place, where they would take new people that were traveling in, and they would be stuck there in Sodom and Gomorrah and trying to find a way to survive and live there. And the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah if this research is correct, would end up giving these travelers gold or currency with their name on it. And when they would give the currency with their name on it, these people would go to these different shops and they would try to buy things, but nobody of that city would sell to them. That person would be stuck, no one would help, and little by little, they would die. And as they died, the people would watch them die. It was almost like it seemed to be a sport. And then as they would die, they would come and collect all their things. Now, there's other things that we can read that are biblical texts that we can find in there. What I'm telling you is this. When God rained down his wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah, he had warned them time and time and time and time and time and time and time again to repent and to come back. But they did not want to. They chose to be where they were at. Now, you can think about this. What happens, if you, what happens if you leave a city that's like that? Now, this is God, not us. This is God's judgment. Does sin spread or does it stay contained? It spreads. And God, who is just who had given time and time and time and time and time and time and been patient and time again, finally, after what had happened to Lot, those that had showed up finally said, it's it. 
because they will cause destruction, not just for a few travelers. It will go throughout the world and there will be devastation. And we go to the Canaanites. And I'm going to not get as specific and graphic for different people that may be in the room, but I'd love to talk with you about it. But let's go to the Canaanites. The Canaanites, 400 years, they had seen what had happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. Their God was named El, and their God was a God that he had three wives. They were his sisters, and that God had married his sisters. El had killed one of his children, another God. He had killed one of his sons. He had killed one of his daughters. That was who they worshipped, so who do you think they became like? There was rapid and mass immorality and sexuality of a very perverse nature. They would take their children and they would offer their children in a very horrific way to Molech. In a horrible way. And as they offered that child, these people would bring their children and offer them in sacrifice in order to get blessings on the land or their crops or their business or something else. And they would offer these children up. The mother could never shed a tear and she had to dance and celebrate as it was happening. If she did, there would be ramifications against her. Priests and priestesses, part of the religious ceremony was there was prostitution, male and female. In order to relate to God, there was prostitution and abuses that would happen in the midst of that. And then these children, again, I'm trying to figure out how to say all this. Just know this. It was wicked and painful and nasty and horrible, and abuses upon abuses upon abuses. And for 400 years, God had been patient, trying to time and time again draw the Canaanites to recognize that this, these false gods that they followed were a travesty, were a lie. But the Canaanites did not pay attention. And in fact... This is where we see them go up against Israel, trying to find ways to actually kill the Israelites. So God, after 400 years and trying to move them in and being sabotaged, finally had said, I've had enough. Israel, you're going to wipe them out. Now, and why was God saying that? Here's what we need to remember. God is God of love. God is a God of justice. God is patient and wants people to come to him and repent. But God allows people to make their choices. But he is a God that also says this, you can make your choices, but that doesn't mean you get to choose your consequences. Which is the same thing that he says to us. If you want to live for yourself, you can live for yourself on this earth, but don't expect that there's not consequences at the end. God wants everyone to know salvation. But God also tells us this, there is no greater good than God who loves us. But if you want to live your way, so be it. You can live your way, but you don't get your consequences. And let me also say this, God was dealing at a point in time in trying to establish the nation of Israel because everybody was trying to wipe them out. And out of the nation of Israel is born Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't, God does not do all the same things at all the same times. There's a different point, but God's heart is always the same. He is patient and loves and desires that no one should perish. But then church, why does hell exist? Is it because God's mean and ugly and just wants to kill people and let them suffer eternally? The lake of fire was made for Satan, not for mankind. God loves people, but he also allows them to make their own choices. 
God doesn't send anybody to hell because it's undeserved. We're all deserving of hell. We're all deserving of the lake of fire. But it is only through the forgiveness and faith in Jesus Christ that God redeems us, transforms us, forgives us, and begins to say, I am adopting you to become my own. That none should perish is what I desire, but he leaves it for people to make their own choices, but he doesn't allow people to make their own consequences. So with all that said, does that make sense where I was at? Does that clear it up a little bit more and I just make it muddy? It's okay if I made it muddy. We can talk. It's a little bit clearer. Okay, now, so why does David here say, I want to hate with a perfect hate, okay? What David is talking about is he wants to have the heart of God with a zeal for God. He wants to have God's zeal, and he wants to have a zeal for God. Church, we read in Revelation where the Bible talks about, I wish that you were, is it Revelation where it talks about, I wish you were hot or cold, but you're lukewarm? Talks about that to one of the churches, Laodicea. God is disgusted by the person that says they believe in him and is just, nah. I've told you before, I was the only grandkid that didn't grow up on the farm. I was the suburban E-town kid. And I'd go and visit my grandparents in Meade County. They had all this crazy stuff that I didn't know anything about. All the other cousins knew how to do this stuff. I didn't know how to do anything. I just want you to know right now, I learned very quickly, don't wear shorts around the fence, okay? Don't get near the fence because it's electric. And I want you to know that when you try to step over the fence and that you get, that's a life-changing event right there, okay? For a nine-year-old, that's a life-changing event, okay? When that touched my leg, I did not sit there and go, oh, that's an electric fence. I was like, whoa! Now, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not telling you that all of us as Jesus people should be over-exuberant. What I'm telling you that all Jesus people should be reflecting the passion and the power of God in our lives. You cannot have a relationship with Christ and be flat. You cannot have a walk with God who is power and love and wisdom, who gets a hold of us and sit there and say, yep, well, you know, he changed my life. How? How? Well, he changed it. Save, save me from hell. God's good. Now, a person that's almost had a near-death experience is not the same that they used to be. You can't be. You recognize what you did not have and what you have been given. So you are different with how you approach things, with what you do, with how you love people, with how you care, with how you conduct your life. It is different because Jesus is power and love and has gotten a hold of you. And if we're flat, that means there's something wrong with the heart. There's something wrong with the mind. Something is wrong. Something's got in the way. David has a zeal. And he wants that zeal to say this. If they are, and when he says the bloodthirsty, these are murderers. When he says it again, let's go back and look. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. O oh, oh men of blood, depart from me. Murderers, people that were physically taking lives. He was saying, these murderers, these people that are doing the very things against God, I want nothing to do with them. I want to hate like you hate God. But how is God's hate? God's hate is based on justice, not vengeance. And God's hate is only based on this. I want everyone to come to the life-saving knowledge of faith in Jesus Christ. I want them in the Old Testament by faith to turn to Yahweh and to trust me. But if you choose not to, that's your choice. But justice has to be done because I will not allow you to eradicate people all time. Everybody has to give an account to God at some point in time. Nobody gets away with anything. And so there is a zeal there. Church, this fourth point. Your life should be passionate for God. 
It should be passionate for God. Again, I'll say this. I've heard so many people say, this is it, Jesus is coming back. This is it, Jesus is coming back. I'm gonna tell you right now, every generation has thought that. I'm not telling you that he's not coming back. What I'm telling you is this. When I've heard Christians say that, I've heard it this way. Jesus is coming back. What are we gonna do? What do you mean what are we gonna do? We should be celebrating our God's coming back. He's victorious. He wins. And I should be busy about telling other people about Jesus because if I don't, they're headed to hell. And if he's coming back, there is no second chance. What is this? God's coming back. Oh no, what are we gonna do? Whose team are you on? What are you thinking? That should be a victory lap for the Christian. That should be a moment. My God's coming back. He's won. And I'm gonna share the victory news in love, compassion, but with great urgency about you need to know the God who loves you and died for you and forgave you of all your sin. What is this? There's no zeal in the church if we're all worried about he's coming back. Oh my goodness, what is that? Wake up! Zeal! And remembering God's faithfulness and what he's done in your life and how much he loves us and saved us from. This last part. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This fifth part, you must bring your life under the scrutiny of God. I love how the Holy Spirit gave David these last two verses. He has said all these things talking about God knows me, good and bad. I can't hide from God no matter where I try to go, good or bad. He's formed me to reflect him, give me a zeal that promotes and proclaims him. But God, I may be wrong in some of my motives and some of my hearts. I may be wrong in some of my views. God, search me. See, zeal is an important thing, but zeal by itself can get us into severe trouble. When we think about truth, when we think about truth, as a Christian, when we think about truth, we're not just thinking about presuppositions and facts and principles. For the Christian to know truth is to know a person. His name is Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you try to live with principles without Christ, you're a Pharisee. If you try to live this life in walking in principle and you try to have this zeal and you pick up a couple of verses here and there and you say, this is what the Bible says, but you're not in relationship with Christ, you become a Pharisee. You become more damaging and you don't even know the difference because you, I read the Bible. You know, Jesus looked at the Pharisees and said this, you study the scriptures and you study them in vain. This is Jesus. You study the scriptures and you study them in vain because when you read them, you see all this stuff, but you don't see me. What's the purpose of reading the Bible if it's not to see God face to face? Think about this with zeal. Listen in Romans 10, one through four. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved I bear them witness for that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Do you see what he said? And he's saying this about the Jews. They have a zeal not according to knowledge, not according to knowing God. And think about the Pharisees. How did they handle that when they ran into Jesus? Called him Beelzebub. I mean, that's, that's a great job right there, right? Call the Son of God the devil. They opposed him at everything they did. They kept telling him he was breaking the commandments. When Jesus kept showing them and was patient, Time after time, after time, after time. How can Beelzebub cast out Beelzebub? House divided against itself. 
Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or to not? He kept challenging them and challenging them. Your views on how you look at the scripture are wrong, and I'm showing you truth. But they refused because they wanted to stand on principle. I'm not gonna back down. I know the Torah. You, you, who are you? I'm educated. I know the Torah. You don't know Jesus because you can't even realize the truth in face to face. Church, think about this with Philippians 3, 4 through 10. This is the Apostle Paul. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. But I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings and becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Church, if we're going to say that we know truth, that doesn't mean standing on principle alone. That means standing in relationship with God. And that means search me, because God, I may have the wrong interpretation of your word. I have a zeal, but I have realized it is a zeal of destruction, not of Jesus Christ. I may have a principle to stand on, I don't know, name it. Any principle that's not stood in relationship with Christ, you will become a Pharisee or you will excuse sin. We must ask God to search us over and over and over because we want to know God and to know his word correctly. Notice that Paul at one point in time had a zeal. He had a disagreement with Barnabas about Mark. Paul's zeal said, I'm not gonna trust Mark. Barnabas says, whether he blew it or not, I'm going to keep up with him. It was so much of a disagreement that Paul and Barnabas, a great, fantastic team, split. Aren't you glad that doesn't happen in the church anymore? And yet, later on, we find out that Paul has recognized the value of what's going on in Mark's life and has come back. Wants Mark to be a part of his ministry. And Paul's pretty blunt. Paul could have gone back and said, this is the reason why I don't deal with Mark, because he did this, this, and this, and thus he's not deemed worthy for ministry. Because he says it about other people. He talks about other people that have been with him that have gone off on heresy and everything else. And he's like, don't trust them. One point in time they were with us. Now they're speaking heresy. Don't deal with them. It's interesting how Paul goes back and recognizes that maybe he was wrong. Maybe Mark does play a part in things. See, church, this is why I'm saying it. We need to have a zeal for God, but not a zeal based on us, but a zeal based on knowing our God's heart. When we open this word, we're praying, God, I don't want to just memorize scripture. I want to know your heart. And God, as I know your heart, correct me. Holy Spirit is the, the, the Holy Spirit is going to be the one that gives me the correct interpretation. I'm going to be around godly people. We're going to sharpen. We're going to go through things. I'm not going to come up with this on my own, but it's also this. If I don't have a relationship with God, this is not going to help you give, become any holier or better or anything else. You will become a son of the devil and you will use this to abuse and beat other people with it and you will think you're justified the entire 
time. God, search me. Know me. Let everything in this moment be about knowing and pleasing you. One other negative. I know, the hard sermon today. This is what I get concerned about right now with the American church. Why in the world are we so divided right now instead of running to minister to people with the coronavirus or ministering to justice causes or anything else in this world? And yet, the American church, I'm not talking about individuals, but I'm talking about right now, we are so daggone divided, it's disgusting. And everybody's using the Bible to prove their point. And in my opinion, you can use the Bible all you want, but you don't look anything like Jesus. The whole point is, how do we look like Christ? If you're standing on a principle, you, better, you need to ask yourself the question, am I standing with God or have I created something like the Pharisees and justifying myself and really, I don't look like him? I don't have the answer. I'm just telling you what I know the Bible says. Search me. If David says that, and we know he's a man after God's own heart, what does that mean about the rest of us? When's the last time you asked God, search me to make sure that I know this is right, your heart, that I'm applying your word? The Bible tells us, divide the word correctly. That also means we can divide it incorrectly. How do we get it right? We seek in prayer after the face of God and say, Lord, I want to know you and your heart. And church, here's the good thing. You can't get away from him. He's all around us. He loves us. God is for us, not against us. And he is wanting us as his children to come before him in humility and say, God, I need you more than I ever have before. And I know you love me. And I know you want to reveal your word. And I know you're giving me a heart of flesh and turning it from a heart of stone. You have saved me if I have a relationship with Jesus Christ in faith. And so God, come. Come, correct me, correct me, love me, change me, transform me, so that when people look, they go, that's Jesus Christ.